Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based psychotherapists and mothers on this body-positive parenting journey with you, here to help you help your children fully bloom. A quick reminder that this podcast is for general information and educational purposes only, and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 62. As many of you know, this season, our theme has been body positive parenting in real life, where we've featured personalized questions from our patrons. Patron support allows us to keep this podcast going strong, and your questions have allowed us to customize this content for you. For more information on how you can become a patron and support the Full Bloom Project, please visit fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. Now, for this week's question, I'm a parent and practitioner and have done a lot of reading and training on my own about intuitive eating. I've noticed what seems to be conflicting advice when it comes to what some sources call, quote, sometimes food, and intuitive eating calls, quote, play food for kids. Say a child is at a birthday party and wants a second piece of cake. Intuitive eating would allow the child a second go if that's what they want, while others would say the parent should remind the child that we eat, quote, sometimes food in moderation or one at a time. I understand where both are coming from and both cite Ellen Satter's work. What do you think about the difference? This is such a good question, and uh, versions of this question, I feel, have been asked at almost every uh, workshop, uh, speaking engagement Leslie and I have given on the topic. But there are others that are far more expert than we are on the division of responsibility when it comes to feeding and the Ellen Satter work and models. And some of you will recognize today's guest, Jennifer Harris, who is a dietitian and member of the Ellen Satter Institute from our season one where we talked about what does healthy really mean and we're thrilled to welcome her back today to help us tackle this really really relatable question jen welcome back to the full bloom podcast thank you i'm so happy to be here with you both today yeah we're just so happy you're back and i don't know if you were aware but your podcast episode in season one was i think one of our most listened to episodes right leslie yeah what does healthy really mean? It's a big, important question that Jen helped us tackle, I guess, now over a year ago. Well, that's wonderful. It's a big, big question. It's a big, big thought. (laughs) It sure is. So for those who didn't listen to that, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and the work that you do? Yes, I'd be happy to. So um, my name is Jennifer Harris, as you know, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist. I'm licensed in the state of Minnesota, and 
I also have a credential through the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. So I've been practicing in the area of eating disorders for about 30 years. And I've done some other work as well in terms of clinical and community work. But my real uh, love is working in the field of eating disorders. And so I focus my attention on that um, predominantly over that time period. And I was first exposed to the Saturn models in 1996, so quite a while ago. And so they've been a large part of my care planning and my work with my patients. So I'm heavily influenced by that model. And because of that love and interest, I joined the Ellen Satter Institute faculty back in 2015. And it's just been a wonderful collaboration because I find the application of the models to be just endless. And it's just been great fun working within the models and being a part of such a wonderful group and working with Ellen Satter herself, who is still very, very involved and such a wonderful mentor and supporter. So that's me in a nutshell. And um, I think since we had you on, we've we have talked more explicitly about the Saturn models um, and the division of responsibility. For those who missed episode number 47, we had Laura Thomas on who helped us kind of take a deeper look at the division of responsibility in the Ellen Saturn models. So you were definitely one of the first people on the podcast in the first season to kind of introduce them, but we've tried to educate our listeners a little bit more about them because they they really, as you pointed out when we first spoke, they're so protective and, of course, so healing if there are um, disordered behaviors to correct. But I, I just wanted to kind of make that connection for those who might have tuned in or, or would like to go back and listen to episode number 47. Yeah, there's a lot of clarity in the models and division of responsibility is definitely a foundation of the models. And then when people get into using the models, which is always the fun part, I, I call it getting in the sandbox and really kind of playing and working within the models, either as like a parent or, or a professional, then lots of questions start popping up in terms of application because there's so many nuances to the models, which is what I'm thinking is going on with some of the questions that we may be going through today. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's jump in and, and um, read our listener question and get right in there. Zoe, you want to read it? Sure. Sure. Um, and this question has come up so much in our, uh, like in our parent talks. So I'm, I'm really glad someone wrote in. Okay. The listener writes, I'm a parent and practitioner and have done a lot of reading and training on my own about intuitive eating. I've noticed what seems to be conflicting advice when it comes to what some sources call, quote, sometimes food and intuitive eating calls, quote, play food for kids. Say a child is at a birthday party and wants a second piece of cake. Intuitive eating would allow the child a second go if that's what they want. While others would say the parents should remind the child that we eat, quote, sometimes food in moderation one at a time. I understand where both are coming from and both cite Ellen Satter's work. What do you think about the difference? Okay, that's just such an astute question. I, I really appreciate that question. I think that's what I'm talking about are people who are kind of starting to work within the models and uh, finding their way within the models. And I think what's going on is what I would call a blurring of the models that are out there. And there are two 
models out there, and that's intuitive eating and eating competence. And I am not going to present myself as an expert in intuitive eating, but I have some broad stroke knowledge uh, in how they are similar and different. And I think that's the crux of what's going on with this question. So first, when we think about what a model is, is a model is a cohesive set of concretely described evidence-based theoretical principles. Additionally, it can be objectively tested. And an idea or, or approach really doesn't have any of those characteristics. Both eating competence, the Saturn eating competence model, and intuitive eating are considered models. They uh, have those evidence-based principles, and they can be objectively tested. They both have validated tests. When you think about a model, though, uh, because it's so there's so much work that goes into it, it's research and evidence-based, that you really have to respect the process of the models, okay? And you can't improvise or substitute or, what I would say, blur the models. Basically, that's why the Ellen Satter Institute exists, right? I mean, it's we are protecting the models, the proper application and use of the models and, and support people working within the models. So in how they're similar, intuitive eating and eating competence is that they both are based on permission, okay? And permission to eat and eat foods you like. And that's really essential for addressing the negative and conflicted anxiety, um, attitudes and behaviors around, eat, around eating is, is permission to eat as much as you want and to eat what you want. And we refer to that in the sadder construct as positive eating attitudes. So that's their similarities. The eating competence model, the way it differs from intuitive eating is it has that component of permission balanced with discipline. Okay, so the permission to eat as much as you want in regular eating time. So the structure is the difference in terms of concept of feed yourself faithfully, have structured meals and snacks, and that's the discipline piece. Intuitive eating has unconditional permission to eat and works on regulation and satiety issues. So that's really kind of the, the difference right there, and that's going to be important when we're thinking about this question of this, this parent and practitioner has. So because of the discipline component in eating competence, it supports the permission to eat and allows forgetting about eating in between. It supports family meals, which allows the child to develop and other adults the, the ability to regulate food intake and also learn to eat a variety of food. So those are two more domains in the eating competence model, internal regulation and food acceptance skills. Then the structure of meals and snacks support eating in terms of social aspects of eating, and therefore it's developmentally appropriate for anyone beyond infancy, which is an on-demand um, feeding and eating schedule. But the beauty of the structure is it allows for uh, parents to implement the Saturn division of responsibility and feeding. And that is the parents in charge of what, when and where, and the child is in charge of how much and whether. And so what the beauty of the structure does is it eliminates the dilemma of having to do cognitive teaching with children 
around food. And so that's where you get into the quote, play food, sometimes food, special foods. Because parents in the structure domain here is they pick what, when, and where. So there is no cognitive work with the child. It just is. And so you can really not have to do that cognitive teaching, which is not applicable for children anyway. And also, I wonder if it introduced, this is just me saying this, conflicting anxiety and perceived restraint upon the child because those foods, again, now are elevated. They're not neutralized. They're, They're special. Yeah. So parents can neutralize the food. They're taking leadership with feeding in terms of proper meal planning. You know, that's a big part of the SATR models, supporting parents to take leadership, how to plan meals so the children have opportunities to learn to like new foods and supports their developing eating competence in children. And so that's the last domain of eating competence, which is contextual skills. So by explaining this compare and contrast, I'm also, you can see, highlighting the four domains within the eating competence model. So when you say special foods, sometimes foods, play foods, those phrases actually are inconsistent with the division of responsibility and feeding. And that's what I mean by the blurred lines, mm-hmm. right? So there's, there's permission parents are working on and they're trying to take leadership, but then it gets blurred because the structure isn't there and then they are into this other arena of qualifying foods, mm-hmm. which for, as a practitioner coming from disordered eating and eating and the, working within the eating competence model, my concerns are then, oops, we've added back in what we're trying to eliminate, conflict, anxiety, worry, too much value to the food itself. I want to maybe... Um because it is, it's, it's a load of information. I sort of want to maybe see if we could digest it a little bit together. As I hear this question, I'm also just hearing, and I'm sure Leslie is too, these questions that come always come up when we get to our module in our body positive parenting, like presentations about food, about feeding. This is always the question like, but you know, what if my kid, what if they only eat bread and butter and that's it, you know, or or a question like this about the second slice of cake. And I, I wonder if, is it fair to sort of distill everything you're saying to we really can't even answer this question without talking about the importance of structure and that a question about food, a question about servings and cake or bread and butter in a way, we can't ask that question without having a really good understanding of structure as the framework for like the way we're thinking about feeding. Is that is that kind of fair to say? Absolutely. It's it's foundational. It's it's the place where I know as a clinician, I always start. And and the structure is what is supportive in a parents being able to do their job with feeding, which is, you know, to plan and provide an offer and then let their child do their job. Now, it also works beautifully, like as I said, with internal regulation because the child can step away from eating and step away from thinking about food. And they're learning how to get enough at the meal and snack so that they're comfortable to the next meal and snack. And that's why 
the reliability for parents and the faithfulness to offering the meals and snacks is so important. It's so tempting to to not offer it because the child is playing or maybe a parent has some concerns about their child's weight and if they don't ask, they don't offer it. But it's it's part of reassuring the child that they'll be fed, they'll have opportunities to eat and they'll be allowed to eat enough. And then they'll make mistakes. Sometimes they'll undereat, sometimes they'll refuse, Sometimes they'll decline eating at all. Sometimes they'll eat too much. But always, there's always another time, meal or snack, where they can make up for mistakes. And that's why it's so important to let the child do their job with how much and whether, right? Because if they ate too much at a snack, just let them have a smaller dinner. I mean, that's the, that is them in action. That's internal regulation and action. See? And then you don't have to do these cognition, this cognitive work. It just happens. And then when children come to meals with adequate meal offerings and they come ready to eat, we're able to take advantage of them developmentally in terms of curiosity and experimenting with foods and giving them strong permission to to not like them and not eat them. So it's a very conducive environment to learning to like new foods, which really is the essence of nutritional excellence high variety diet. You know, the the most helpful diet is the most varied diet. So the structure is really foundational. You know, it allows us to neutralize food. It allows the parents to work on contextual skills. It's modeling to the child what contextual skills look like. Oh, I stop. I eat. I take, this is how I take care of myself with food. This is what a meal looks like. You know, food is neutral there. The environment's neutral there. So yeah, it's it's a big, it's everything. So with this question, from from your perspective, how does a child who has structure navigate a birthday party at, you know, between noon and two on Sunday? Before quarantine. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. And, and, and hopefully after quarantine. That's how we're going to refer to everything. Before quarantine and after right. quarantine. BC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the parents, you know, this is the birthday party and it's, at, you know, we have lunch and then the child gets to participate in the party and that starts to kind of look like their snack, mm-hmm. right? And that's what the parent decides. The snack is going to be this. It's going to be at this time. And the child is allowed to get enough to eat from what is served. And so what does that look like? It might look like two pieces of cake, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, for perspective, when we think about just our own actual experiences at birthday parties, whether it's cupcakes or a cake, your your child may have access to two slices, but they're probably not going to get access to more than that because there wouldn't be enough to go around. (laughs) Like, I know that sometimes parents have these questions like, what if they never stop eating cake? And it's a genuine anxiety that a lot of people seem to have when we, when we talk about this stuff. Um, And I often find myself wanting to say something like, well, what, what's up with the access, right? Like what's the reality of what they even have access to? So I'm hearing you say that, their snack would be what they have access to in that. Um, And I guess building on that, sometimes you go to a a party and 
there's cake and then maybe there's candy and there's a goodie bag and you know it might be the kind of party where you where you know you could grab your own juice and you know it's it's not necessarily served thoughts about sort of how to how to kind of navigate that or how to think about that in terms of the the structure that we're talking about what what the parents are really concerned about in that question this is how i think about these questions is they're worried about internal regulation for their child you know, will they stop eating? And then I think another one that I'm, I'm deducing from that is that eating acceptance or food acceptance skills, I'm sorry, food acceptance skills, and that uh, will they ever eat anything else? And so really, I think, okay, these are the, these are the concerns, um, and the structure's going to support and allow the parent to trust, right? And we call this the trust-based model. So I think the beautiful comment you made is that you know, like like if a child brings something to celebrate their birthday, they're not bringing multiple servings of that. You know, everyone gets a cupcake, right? <laughs> um, but there might be extra where it might be. Um, there's a couple pieces left. Does anyone care for another piece? You know, that's the the adult still taking leadership that way. Um, and I think with kids, I guess I'd need to know the age of the kid. Like, is is it a free for all on juice? I find that. Hard to, I guess, believe is a hard word, but I'm guessing there's some kind of service or or help yourself to some juice and pour it for yourself out of the spigot or whatever. I think you really can't get into limiting in that environment, right? This is this is what's offered and this is the environment and it is going to be over, right? It's going to end uh, because of the circumstances and the mom's not serving, let's say they have extra juice and they have a tummy ache and they're full. Well, at dinner, the child still comes to the table, but they're allowed to eat as much or as little. I mean, that's their internal regulation working. Now, if a child goes bonkers at a birthday party, as a clinician, I think that food isn't really fully neutralized yet. Right. right? It's, it's so special that the child's kind of going for it. And so that's not the time that you're going to address that in the context of the birthday party. It's in the context of sorting it out with the parent that you're working with. Um, and how can they offer those foods and work on their contextual skills in the context of structure to allow that child to work on their work in terms of neutralizing the foods and eating competence? Let's talk a little bit about that because that seems to be kind of a related question that comes a lot, kind of how much, how do I, I think a lot of parents have a lot of trouble offering these types of foods that they themselves are still working out the special, the treatness to it. And so I get a lot you know, okay, I'm, my kid, my adolescent is, is, is hiding candy wrappers. And then the question is, well, how do I start weaving that in? How often do I offer this in, within the structure? Can you give just your basic guidance around that? Right. Now, what's happened in, in the context of your question is you've kind of moved us into adolescence, which is, mm -hmm. is more challenging, right? Because kids start taking more responsibility. We, mm -hmm. we're, we're, as parents, we're kind of transitioning if the child tolerates. But anytime there's hiding, 
you know, oh, we found stuff under the bed. We found a bunch of candy wrappers. I always think, well, this child has not had a chance to feel good about what they're eating. Again, neutralizing the food. There's some kind of culture from within themselves. You know, that's not a blame game. It's just somehow this child is not, does not have positive eating attitudes, right? Doesn't feel good about eating and doesn't feel good about feeling good because they're hiding it. Right. Um, so there's nothing that feels good about that, which is the hardest part that I think worries parents. Now, in the structure of meals and snacks, um, this is the nuances of the model. So what we do do with with those kind of special foods, let's say, I don't even like to qualify them that way, like just, you know, high fat, high sugar foods, uh, ones that don't always fall in a food group, the ones parents worry about most, we recommend that they offer those foods in the context of the meals in, um, in a single serving. And we recognize that those foods are competitive in terms of palatability and meals are times for working on food acceptance skills and internal regulation. So the one serving allows them to work on food acceptance skills and offering it within the meal to be eaten at any time during the meal allows the child to work on internal regulation with those foods. So they learn, you know, how to include those foods in a satisfying way at mealtimes. Then at snack times, which is the case of, let's say, the birthday party, it's important to offer those foods as snacks so the child can eat them and get as much as they need to eat um, at snack time like we would anytime. So it might be a plate of cookies, right? A plate, you know, not a portion controlled item, you know, a plate of cookies and something to drink and they can eat as much, they get enough to eat, and then they can walk away from it. Then they're allowed to be free from thinking about food in between meals and snacks. And so if I had an adolescent, I would be working with the parents to start modeling and provide leadership so that that child can start feeling good about those foods and eat them in a way that feels positive. And so I would start including, recommending they do include those into you know, meals and snacks. I'm totally thinking about this because I think the the pandemic and the quarantine has definitely been a challenge to navigate structure. I find it it feels likely to me that in, in recommitting to structure and then integrating those foods in the way that you're describing and like you said that they may be competitive for palatability. I mean, how long would you say it might take for a kid to sort of reacclimate because I think that, you know, I know, I mean, I know what, what, what will inevitably happen when I put, you know, put dessert on the table as part of the dinner, that certainly my little guy is going to eat that. And maybe that's it. It's quite possible that that's going to happen probably for a while because that's just sort of where he's at. And I, I, I'd like to believe that that's just part of the process based on just everything that, you know, we've learned here. But I, I think since you're the expert, I wonder if you could shed a little light um, and reassure parents pr- preemptively. Right. Um, so when, when you serve first, I want to clarify to be sure that I get the message is clear that at the meals, the dessert that's offered is one serving. Mm-hmm. We do recommend that because it, it can interfere with everything else, all the learning that's going on in the mealtime besides just internal regulation. So it's one serving that's put out even by um, one serving per person that could be eaten at any time during the meal. So it's, it's, it's not likely that one serving then it'll feel like, well, that's it, I'm done. You know, 
But what they can do is avoid the situation where mom and dad don't let me eat dessert until I eat all my other food, which means they're pressured to eat their other food and they're full, but they eat the dessert anyway because it's such a prize. So now we've taught the child to overeat. So, you know, there's a lot of balls in the air when I, but I'm always breaking it down into the domains of eating competence and, you know, how are we addressing all of these in this instant because they really do relate to each other. And if the child does eat the dessert and say, I'm finished, then you can do what your family normally does. Well, please sit and visit with us a few minutes or um, have the child ask to be excused, however you kind of transition out of the meal for the child. And then they, they wait till snack to eat. And they're probably going to find that they're going to be a little uncomfortable. They, and then they might eat a larger snack. And that's how, you, how the parent attends to their child that, in that way. They're kind of monitoring that. And you know, snack might look something like a meal then because like cheese and crackers and grapes, you know, or something like that. Just just as a child kind of adjusts to, you know, how this operation is handled in the home. Now, when you talk about how long does it take, you know, that's a good question. There's no timeline. It's going to take what it takes. And parents have to be very vigilant and be neutral and allowing this to play out meaning no looks. Are you sure you want that? Um, are you really hungry for another piece? You know, avoid the temptation for because it's got to be completely neutral. Our best, best estimate that we provide parents is that it takes about as long as the child has been restricted or kind of it fed in a, an environment that felt like restraint. Because I, I hate making it sound like it's overt. You know, parents are always doing their best. But, you know, if there's been some kind of restraint or vibes about the foods for a couple of years, you know, it might take a while. But why not? It's time goes by anyway. Right. And the child's going to eat it anyway. Yeah, I'm wondering, just wanting to be mindful of time, but it, and also feeling listening to this, that it's a big commitment, you know, it's a big responsibility to feed um, children. And I think when we're sitting with parents and all these questions are arising, just like they are right now, there's this element of like, oh my gosh, I'm, there's so much I need to change. So I'm wondering if each parent listening left this conversation with one thing instead of, oh my gosh, there's so much to change. What do you recommend they they leave with? I, I recommend they eat together mm-hmm. and have the structure. So the first step is eat what you're eating now. Just eat at regular, consistent times. Just do what you're doing now and get that structure in place because that's where the classroom lives for the child in terms of this work. And that is very stabilizing. Now, when I answer these questions, and I apologize for that, I'm kind of thinking it with my clinician, you know, hat. My view is that I explain the rationale for the recommendations. Otherwise, it's not going to make sense. But if, if people get back to the table or the blanket or, you know, wherever they gather to eat and eat what they're eating now at regular times, that's huge. It's it's a big step in terms of towards eating competence. Yeah, and it's it's also it's doable. I mean, 
I think creating perfect structure, <laughs> maybe less so, but creating some structure and like sort of that reminder that you don't have to really touch the what, right? Like the, what you're feeding doesn't need to change. I know we talked a lot about that the first time we spoke. You don't have to change your shopping lists or, you know, improve, quote, improve anything there, but just sort of shore, shore up the structure or maybe even notice where you, where there's a lack of structure, you know, kind of take stock in that. Because I think that I imagine a lot of people with schedules being what they are right now have been thrown off course. And like most of our routines have been uprooted, including feeding and feeding. Right. And it's, it's still, it is flexible. Like remember the birthday party idea or oh, today your snack is going to be at this time at the birthday party or tonight dinner's late. Uh, we're kind of on the run. It's takeout. You know, it's just the leadership part. And the what isn't as important, except the only reason I kind of went there is the nature of some of these questions were yeah. Yeah. some of the what in terms of the trust um, right. and, and positive eating attitudes. But yeah, it's always, always recommended to start with structure. Well, thank you so much for coming back on and, and clarifying and deepening um, everyone's learning who's who's getting who's listening to this right now today oh i'm so happy to be here i find it so fun to talk about i can talk forever you'll have to join us again next season (laughs) so that's our show we would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode so please shoot us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find this podcast. As we mentioned, please consider becoming a patron to keep this podcast going strong. You can check that out at fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm -hmm.